Welcome to Balance of Power on 1039-1450 WKXL NHTalkRadio.com. Also, wherever you get your podcasts, I'm Ken Kale, joined by our panel, two-time U.S. Representative Paul Hodes, former senior staffer and campaign manager Matt Robeson, and columnist and political analyst Alicia Preston. Republicans have turned all of their communications focus to the immigration issue, the immigration situation. CBS reports that there is now a backlog of migrant children in Border Patrol custody of 4,200, causing 3,000 of them to be held past the limit of time that is supposed to be in place. Republicans say this is Joe Biden's fault. Democrats say that a comparison with policy under Biden and under Trump is ludicrous, and they're still trying to fix what Donald Trump broke. So what's actually happening at the border, and where do we go from here, Alicia? What's ludicrous is to think anyone has done better than anyone else with this terrible situation. Um, we saw that children in cages, in quotes, uh, under Obama, under Trump, and now under Biden. We have a terrible situation at the border. And what we know is, as of right now, there are three administrations that haven't figured out how to solve the problem. But the results of the problem are absolutely no different under any administration. And to make it partisan is the most ludicrous of claims. There are thousands of migrants coming over the border. Um, it creates a COVID danger. It's a danger to our southern border. We don't know who these people are. Um, we have to look into and stop talking about it like they've done for 25 years. True immigration reform. We have to look into our amnesty laws. I am a supporter of amnesty for those who are cover coming from you know war-torn nations where women and children are forced into servitude and sexual slavery. I think that warrants amnesty. And so I'm not saying stop everybody, put the giant wall up and say no one's allowed in the country. But I'm saying we've got to have a system. We should not have thousands of children detained without their parents. We shouldn't have it under Biden. We shouldn't have had it under Trump. We shouldn't have had it under Obama, but we have. So what people need to stop doing is making it a partisan issue, sit down and make it a policy issue to figure out how to solve the problem and not worry about the headlines tomorrow and the talking heads tomorrow, worry about the results six months from now. Congressman Hodes. Well, Alicia is right about the long-term solution and the uh, proper view of the problem. It's a, it's a, it's a real problem. It's a real issue. Uh, nobody, nobody's gotten their hands around it and solved it for varying political reasons and obstructions. That said, Joe Biden is headed towards a political problem on immigration because the Republicans are very effective at messaging. And one of the places where they've been most effective around messaging is around immigration and the situation on the border uh, for no real fault of Biden's has gotten more, more problematic since he took office. Now, Trump put in uh, a aberrant uh, 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 policy at the border. And as a result, or and even before that, the Democrats took a real uh, leftward tilt on immigration. Um, uh, Obama had not 
you know, done, he, he deported a, an awful lot of people. Trump was going to do whatever he could to overturn what Obama did. And I think Biden uh, has to be very careful about what he does on immigration, because the numbers are pretty interesting. On uh, Biden's numbers in terms of approval on, hand, on handling of the economy is at 60%. He's 67% on handling of the coronavirus, but only 52% approve of the way he's handling immigration. And he hasn't done anything really yet. What he said was he favored a comprehensive immigration reform. That's what he said. He favored comprehensive immigration reform. Now, he also uh, stopped um, or suspended Trump's remain in Mexico policy for asylum seekers. So he, he suspended that. And putting forward a comprehensive immigration bill to provide a pathway to citizenship for undocumented uh, immigrants um, sent a message to the traffickers and, and, and people smugglers who are responsible for so much of the uh, illegal border crossing. And as a result, what's happened over the past few months is that in December, you had 71,000 people apprehended as they crossed the border. In December and January, it's 75,000. It's 100,000 in February, the highest level in 14 years. And it looks like it's going higher. And as Alicia said, you've got the problem of kids in cages uh, that is uh, a terrible problem because given what Trump did, we're, we're unfortunately um, not, haven't figured out a way to reunite folks, even though Biden has said he would. And Biden's promised policies have given uh, hope to people that they will be treated more lightly. And thus, we've got a surge in illegal uh, border crossings. So uh, Biden has a political problem uh, because he could founder on immigration in many ways. If you take a look at the, the, the southern states and the border states where um, employment in the border patrol is very high, including a significant number of uh, uh, Americans of Hispanic uh, origin um, and high concentrations of uh, Latin American Americans, um, you get a, a, a pretty stern view of illegal immigration, a, a, a pretty strong, stern view of people crossing the border um, uh, illegally. And uh, you don't want to be caught as a Democrat with an overly uh, overly welcoming posture on immigration while on illegal immigration while you're trying to deal with a comprehensive immigration reform. When I was in Congress, uh, there was a real effort to deal with HB3 visas for uh, seasonal workers and others that were needed in New Hampshire for employment. We had a robust tourist, uh, tourist economy. Uh, the hotels needed workers. We needed reform around bringing in seasonal workers and other reforms around bringing in uh, uh, professionals. Uh, and the effort foundered, not because at the time of Republican opposition, it foundered on democratic opposition to anything less than comprehensive immigration reform. 
Uh, I think one of the lessons is you as a Democrat on immigration, uh, it's important to be seen as uh, humane, but tough, if you can somehow manage to be humane, but tough, and working as hard as possible to solve the overall problem. It's a, it's a real challenge for the Biden administration, and one that if uh, they were listening to us, they'd pay attention to right away. I'm going to push back a little bit on both of my fellow panelists here. There is an awful lot of fuzzy thinking that has been introduced by Republicans in Congress who have been desperate in the last week to turn America's attention away from the COVID relief bill, which is broadly supported by the American people, and toward the situation at the border. Not that the situation at the border is not worthy of attention. It is. But in their desperation to turn the focus to immigration, what Republicans have done is they have conflated to very different things. So to be crystal clear about this, there is a giant difference between dealing with unaccompanied migrant children, which is what the Biden administration is predominantly dealing with today, and intentionally separating children from their parents, which is what the Trump administration did. Unaccompanied migrant children versus intentionally separating them. Now, we can get into the whys and wherefores of cages if we really want to. They're online, you can read from verified real news sources, not fake news sources. You can look at the Washington Post. You can look at trusted news sources for a history of how we ended up with chain link fences, which were in fact constructed, and it was a mistake, under the Obama administration. And yes, we then ended up under President Trump putting children, taking them from their parents and putting them in these partitioned areas which you could call cages, because that is, in fact, what they are. And that was bad. That was wrong. But again, I just it, it's, it's super important to put in context here to, 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 to separate these two very different things. Now the Biden administration is finding itself dealing with, you know, Ken, at the top of the question, you cited that there are, is a backlog of 42 hundred migrant children in Border Patrol custody. At the height of the migration crisis in 2014, we were getting 4,000 adults and children a day coming over the border. So is it a problem? Yes, this is a problem. This is bad. Is this in context the same thing we were dealing with six or seven years ago? No, it's not even close. And it's not even close to the situation that we created two years ago under the Trump administration's policy. Final point I'll make is that I do agree with what Alicia is saying, right? In an ideal world, we would not demagogue this. We would not make it partisan. We would not make it political. And Paul is right. There is a huge political trapdoor sitting under the Biden administration with this issue. We've seen it before. Paul outlined his experience in Congress. The right thing to do is probably to look to what the American people have consistently said on this decriminalizing border crossing is not supported by the American people. It is not supported by uh, Hispanic Americans. It is actually uh, the majority of, of Hispanic Latino Americans in polls say that they oppose that idea. So 
what the Biden administration needs at this point is some time to expand the housing. They've just opened new facilities. Um, the, these facilities are not cages. They are not oh. partitioned uh, with, with chain link fencing. And they need to enforce uh, restrictions at the border. They need to enforce the borders. They need to have an enforcement first policy to have any credibility with the American people on the rest of the things that they need to do. Let's remember though, Joe Biden has been in government for decades. I don't think that he needs more time. Does he need more time to make things happen? Absolutely. But Joe Biden has been a United States Senator, a vice president, and now president for decades and decades and decades and done nothing <coughs> to solve a long-term ongoing problem with immigration and immigration reform. And so I'm not giving Joe Biden a pass that he needs time to figure it out. He should have figured it out probably 30 years ago, and he could be implementing it today. Oh, well, that's fair. I, I just love it. When Republicans pull out the, he's been in Washington for 30 years and what did he do? Nothing. I mean, that was it. It worked for Donald Trump. So maybe, Alicia, in this case, it'll work for you about our president, Joe Biden. But I don't think anybody uh, is pointing a finger at his experience and, and where it gets him uh, on immigration. And Matt Robeson, all I'll say is, you can push back, but the difference between kids in cages and separating families and putting them in cages or unaccompanied minors and separating families for kids in cages is just, it's like, that's political oatmeal. It's blah, blah, Not blah, at all. Not at all. First of all, nobody knows about the difference and nobody cares, but you. No, you're totally, you're hundred percent wrong. You're the wrongest you've ever been in the history of the galaxy. This is the single wrongest statement that has ever been made by anyone anywhere, including on undiscovered planets across the cosmos. Uh, there is absolutely a difference between having an unaccompanied minor come across the border, encouraged, as you say, by the fact that enforcement is going to be more lax under a Biden administration. If you have a 14-year-old migrant coming across the border, you have to do something with her or him. You have to put them somewhere. You are not going to, to Alicia's point, not consider their case for political amnesty. You are going to have to house them. That is different from yanking a child away from their parents, much younger children under the Trump administration and putting them in a cage. That is not just apples and oranges, that is apples and orangutans. No similarity whatsoever. Not, and second. by the way, by the way, what the, the facilities that are under construction and that have just been opened under the Biden administration are not cages. If you actually look at the pictures of them, despite Republican memeing to the, to the contrary, these are actually relatively well-constructed facilities that are sort of the best that they can do right now. I'm not saying that they're luxury housing. I'm not saying that it's an ideal situation, but they are trying their darndest. And yeah, they need more than a month or two to get underway and construct more capacity to take care of these kids who are coming unaccompanied across the border. You're missing my point. My point is not about the merits of your policy position, which I, I grant you are well thought out. And for those, those nerds who listen to our program and delve into policy and follow your arguments, yes, it's true. And Marriott points are waiting for the new facilities that Biden is constructing. In the general population, what I'm saying is the, the intricacies 
of dealing with unaccompanied minors versus kids in cages are not as important and fall on deafer ears than the potential for Republican messaging about Biden's ineffectiveness. And therein lies the problem for Biden, not in terms of the actual policy, not in terms of whether he's doing better or not, but because Republicans know how to flog the immigration issue to their advantage. And Democrats, whatever their policy prescriptions, have proven woefully inadequate at dealing in just in messaging terms to counter what the Republicans have lay out on the table. And therein lies a real problem for the Biden administration. I would just say that the problem starts with backing up and accepting the premise, the Republican premise from the get-go that, oh, you know, it's all the same. What Obama did, what Trump did, what Biden but since did. But since when has messaging been about the reality of the situation? No, no, I'm not saying the reality. I am saying that Democrats, from a messaging standpoint, do not accept the premise, which is where we started here, that, oh, you know, everyone's a little bit to blame, you know, certainly mistakes on all sides. No, I call shenanigans on that. Democrats, the first place they start from a messaging standpoint is, you know, here's here's step one. We're not going to rip kids away from their families. If they come here, if they come here, we're going to do our best to put them in a safe, humane situation and try and take care of them. That is the starting point for messaging. Well, well now trying to say something. Now, now we're getting to a constructive approach. I agree with you. That is and could be an effective democratic message that could also do a little bit of education at the same time as pushing back on the Republican meme. I haven't heard that yet. And I'd like to hear that from the Biden administration beyond Jen Psaki saying, oh, yeah, the situation's very challenging. Well, 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 cry into my uh, Cheerios, because if you're not pushing back on the Republicans with effective messaging, you're losing. I think Jen Psaki also said people are, you know, I'm paraphrasing, people are willing to criticize the situation, not offer solutions. And I kind of think that administration should be offering solutions. But this conversation demonstrates one of the problems. When we get down to defending Biden or attacking Trump or vice versa, based on, well, Biden's cages are nicer than Trump's cages, the cement floor in Biden's cages is just a little more cushiony than the cement floor in Trump's cages, then we have proven the point that we have absolutely no intention, will, or ability to solve this problem. That is so true. What, what shocks me is the same Democrats who are so upset about the governors of Texas and Florida opening up have nothing or very little to say about the catastrophe, and it's nothing short of that, that's going on at the border, letting on, letting into this country many folks from other countries that are infected with COVID, but very little about that, but all the criticism of the governors who are trying to open up their states. And there are probably about 20 of them across the country right now. I mean, Texas and Florida, mostly in the spotlight, but it just seems to me uh, just to be so hypocritical. Well, I would make a distinction here between having a rake dropped on your head and stepping on one. So if you are the governor of Texas and you say, 
yeehaw, we are opening up intentionally, despite the guidance from the head of the CDC, despite the guidance from Anthony Fauci saying, guys, would you just cool your jets for a couple more months here? Hang on, we're getting there. We have, we have one in five American adults has now been vaccinated. If you guys could just chill for a little bit, we will get there and the situation will be much safer. That is one thing versus having a situation brought to your doorstep. The Biden administration cannot control, nor can these governors, the fact that migrants, including unaccompanied minors, are coming to our borders. I agree with you that more enforcement is a good idea. I'm just saying that I don't see quite as much hypocrisy from Democrats for saying, guys, you know, like, please just don't walk into a giant mess by opening your states prematurely. We've kind of seen that movie before. It kind of didn't work out that well. And by the way, the sequel is going to be much better if you can just hang on a bit. Very good. Well, we'll see if somebody can come up with a, uh, a solution to what's happening at the border. Uh, is there any chance, any chance whatsoever that the, the, building of the wall could resume at any point under the Biden administration. There's not going to be a, no, Biden is not going to put a penny into the wall. You know what he'll do? You know what he should do? This, Paul, when you were in Congress, do you remember when we were talking about electronic means, essentially? Uh, yeah, of course. Up? You know, we've got drones. We've got, you know, we've got electronic enforcement measures at the border. I, I could see some money going into that, but no, I, I think anything that smacks the wall. Listen, is- listen. I when I was in Congress, I one one of the one of the trips I took was a was a tour of the southern border. Um, we, you know, I, I went with uh, a, another member or two. Uh, we went down, we, we spent some time with the border patrol. We spent some time riding, riding, uh, sh- riding shotgun with the border patrol. We visited the command centers that oversee uh, the border facilities. We spent some time at the uh, incredible crossing uh, down uh, in so- Southern California, you know, like uh, 40 lanes of traffic um, with detention bunkers uh, attached uh, to as the, as people, uh, endless, endless lines of automobiles, um, uh, a number of them carrying contraband in various ingenious ways uh, were plucked, plucked out. Uh, but the command center tour that we took made clear that we have lots and lots of tools at our disposal other than building a stupid brick wall uh, or concrete or whatever um, Trump thought that it ought to be constructed of to uh, enforce uh, the border. Uh, We do not need the wall. A hot mic moment has put the spotlight back on the Senate filibuster. A U.S. senator suggested on the hot mic that because Senate Republicans refuse to work together with the infrastructure or anything else, the big infrastructure bill that the Senate is preparing will have to go through another special process to get around the filibuster. Third-ranking House Democrat Jim Clyburn said the filibuster should be eliminated for bills that relate to voting and elections. Matt, you interviewed the top congressional scholar in America about the filibuster this week. This week, 
and he had a suggestion for what to do about it. Yeah, that's right. We, I, I had a, for for nerds like me who, as Paul <laughs> was alluding to, nerds like me earlier, um, who follow uh, these kinds of issues. The top congressional scholar in America is a guy named Norm Ornstein. He's uh, he's with a conservative think tank. Uh, the American Enterprise Institute. And I had him on a show that'll be airing on WKXL on Thursday. It'll be up on a podcast in the Great Ideas podcast feed. He wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post outlining three ways that you could dial back the filibuster without getting rid of it and maybe make the process work a little bit better, make it a little bit smoother and still preserve the idea of what the filibuster is supposed to do, which is allow full debate on issues and also allow the party that's in the political minority, the Republicans right now, to have some hands in on legislation, to have a say in amending bills and and forcing some compromises. That's what the filibuster is supposed to do. It's not what it's doing now. Uh, The filibuster has changed a great deal uh, over, over recent decades. So he had some suggestions that, um, you know, I think are pretty interesting that would, again, keep the filibuster in place, but allow the majority to move bills through while allowing the minority to have their say and maybe add some tweaks in along the way. So it was a really interesting conversation, really interesting episode. Um, I hope people check it out. You can listen in on WKXL on Thursday. Uh, We'll be airing that uh, in the four to five o'clock hour, and it'll be in the Great Ideas podcast feed uh, same day. Speaking of interviews, uh, Matt and Paul, you guys have done several in the last week with people working to advance the For the People Act on voting and election reform. The New York Times reported over the weekend that one of the groups you interviewed is launching a $30 million ad campaign to build support for the bill. Meanwhile, Republicans are pushing ahead in the opposite direction, advancing 250 state-level bills to change voting and election law in the direction they want. This is setting up to be the biggest clash of 2021 and perhaps in years. What is about to happen? And is there a real danger of a political meltdown in America? over this issue. Your thoughts, Alicia? First of all, I think it is hilarious that there is a group with a $30 million ad campaign to promote legislation to get money out of politics. <laughs> the irony of that is just not lost on me and should be lost on no one. Uh, look, this is a terrible bill, if you believe in states' rights, if you believe in states' rights in any way, shape, or form. This is a power grab from the federal government It is going to unify across all states so many aspects of our voting rights. Some of the parts of it are good. I actually believe felons who have served their time should have their voting rights restored. I believe that's up to the states to decide. I believe in no no excuse absentee balloting. That's up to the states to decide. This is a bill that will literally just wipe out the concept of the Secretary of State in all 50 states and the District of Columbia and elsewhere to make the decisions based on what's best for their state for, their, for the climate of how the state works, for the economies, for the access, for the ages. And it does a few other stupid things. It automatically registers people to vote. The government shouldn't be automatically registering me for anything without my permission. It automatically registers 16 and 17 year olds to vote ahead of their 18th birthday when they can. 
the federal government should not be automatically registering minors to do anything. And now here's another chink in the armor of this, you know, we love people bill or whatever it's called, because they always come up with cute names, is what if I'm a Jehovah Witness, or I'm Amish, or I'm one of a dozen organized religions and cultures in the country that does not believe in voting. Now the federal government's gonna come in and vote and tell me I'm registered to vote or do I have to disclose that I'm Amish to the federal government so that they won't do that? Or do I have to remove myself from the list? It sounds good, it feels good. We're gonna protect voting rights. We're gonna get dark money out of politics and we're gonna spend $30 million of dark money to get dark money out of politics. And it's got a lot of good talking points. In practice, it's a terrible idea. All oats. I am playing the tiniest violin I've ever imagined. It's a it's a it's sort of a nanoparticle violin for Alicia's concerns about oh the intrusion of the federal government in preserving our democracy. How dare they try to promote democracy? How dare they try to save uh, save voting rights from the, the, the people in Georgia who are doing everything they can to make sure black people can no longer vote. How dare they try to make it easier for us to vote in this country so that rather than having 50% of the people vote, we can get a real, a real majority of people exercising this incredible, incredible privilege we have as Americans because you know, the right to vote is uh, important, but if it's not exercised, democracy suffers. So in um, terms of re restoring uh, voting to in this country, in terms of getting people registered, making it easier to vote, putting in some reasonable provisions for same day voting and absentee voting. Oh, heaven, how could you take away the right of Republican legislatures and governors to suppress the vote? How dare you? Well, this is not a free market exercise, people. This is the federal government doing for the nation what the federal government ought to do on voting. And by the way, if in, contained in the same bill are provisions that would save members of Congress, of which I used to be one, from the six hour a day telethon that is the life of a member of Congress. And I won't go into it, uh, but when I was a kid, Jerry, Lee, Jerry Lewis uh, was the guy on television who um, ran the telethons. Let me just tell you, the congressional telethon that I was part of for the six years or so uh, that I was uh, involved in electoral politics was no fun. There was no Jerry Lewis. It was a beige windowless cubicle to which I was consigned with a junior staffer with a stack of papers on, on which were written the names of people who used to be my friends and who would no longer take my phone calls as I begged, pleaded and scraped for money so that I could get reelected. Let's not reform that because then God knows, we, you know, if we if we did reform it, we might actually have members of Congress and the Senate who were free to do their jobs. We don't want that. We want to make sure that all they're doing is having dinner with lobbyists who will gather other lobbyists who will pull together other lobbyists and all will give money to make sure their voices are heard and not the voices of the citizens. So please, let's not reform 
campaign finance and ethics forget about it who needs ethics in government that's just such a bygone old-fashioned thing to do you know what passed for ethics uh when i was in congress was they passed a rule that said if you went to a to a um to a reception in on the capitol grounds that was hosted by a company you couldn't sit down or use a fork you had to use a toothpick well if you've ever tried to spear jello with a toothpick you know how effective eating with a toothpick is but that was supposed to insulate the members of congress from ethical violations so do we need some ethical reform you bet we do and by the way there's a new pack out called the Unpack that is galvanizing young people across this country to support HR1. Matt and I interviewed the people who are running Unpack on Beyond Politics, so folks can find it uh, at nhtalkradio.com or on the podcast stream. And I'm telling you, it is way past time for HR1. And oh my goodness, the federal government is finally doing what the federal government ought to do and help save our democracy. Matt Robeson, your thoughts on H.R. 1, the For the People Act. So I'm going to start by having a little bit of a disagreement with Alicia, and then I'm going to come full circle and kind of agree with her. And I'm going to surprise myself in the process. Look, I disagree about the state's rights angle of this. The constitution clearly lays out that the federal government has the right to oversee the process of elections in this country. It's, it's in black and white in the constitution. I'm all for states having local control over elections if they can do with that responsibility um, the responsible thing. We have a long and sad history in this country of states proving that they cannot act responsibly and fairly, especially as regards voting rights, especially for African-American voters and other minority group voters. And the federal government has had to step in to make sure that people's rights are being protected. And that is, in essence, what is happening here. When the state of Georgia comes in and does a rifle shot law that goes right at a program that black churches maintain, they call it souls to the polls, to conduct early voting in black churches on Sundays. And they say, nope, can't do that anymore. That is a perfect example of you are not, you, you are not able to exercise this responsibility responsibly. And the federal government should step in and say, no, you, you can't do that. The only other point I would make in this regard before I turn around and agree with Alicia is I, I, I do think at some point people have to call shenanigans on the Republican circular reasoning that has been in evidence over the last six months and really in recent years. It's, pre, it's a pretty clear process. Step one is you question the results of elections and you claim fraud. Well, look, we, we saw that. We don't have to relive everything that Donald Trump did after the 2020 election. Step two is you tout polls showing that people have lost confidence in the integrity of elections because they listened to you undermining the integrity of elections. And if you look at polling on this, Morning Consult did polling on this, 72% of Republicans trusted U.S. elections at the beginning of October. By January, once Donald Trump had put them through the ringer, only 30% of Republicans had faith in American elections. 
So it's a direct consequence of Republican leaders undermining faith in elections. And then you just go right to step three, which is you pass laws that are rifle shot at trying to undermine voting rights, especially for groups that tend to vote in favor of Democrats. And you say, well, this is about restoring trust that we undermined in the first place. So I call shenanigans on that process. But what I will say is this, in the last week or so, and I think everyone should check out, as Paul said, the episodes with the leaders of UNPAC, with the leader of the National uh, Democratic Redistricting Committee, um, which is one of the groups spending that 30 million bucks that Ken alluded to. I have been talking to Republican friends who have made two points to me about the For the People Act that I'm not sure I agree with, but I'm willing to think about. I think they should be drawn into consideration. And I, I actually, I, I'd really like Alicia's reaction to this. The arguments that I've heard are, first of all, conservatives in this country do have a function to prevent us from getting out ahead of ourselves, from getting out over our skis. And frankly, there's a lot of evidence that it's a pretty ideologically centrist country on average. And there's not a lot of evidence that what Washington is doing right now is really all that restrained or is really being held back. We just passed one of the most progressive laws in decades in the COVID rescue bill. The second argument is that if you go about the kind of changes that HR1 is promoting too quickly, and in essence, you remove the protections, the, the stacking the deck that has benefited the Republican party. If you remove those mechanisms too quickly and they lose, well, we just saw the movie of the kind of anger and frustration that occurred in the insurrection in the Capitol. And voters lose faith. They get angry. And I, I'm not saying that we should give into what is in essence a hostage situation argument, but it is just worth bearing in mind that that is a reality, that what we are talking about is removing mechanisms that have advantaged Republicans for a long time. And if you do that in one fell swoop, and all of a sudden Republicans start losing a lot more elections, you could end up with a huge swath of this country that feels disillusioned, angry, and no longer feels faith in the American system of government. And that is a problem in itself. That's, that is a real concern. I, I, I don't know, Alicia, what, what do you make of that argument? Am I, am I crazy here? This is what I'm hearing. Well, I think there is a very small contingency of people who have the level of anger to do things like the insurrection at the Capitol. Maybe I'm naive. I'd like to think anyone that would do that were only the people that were there that day. <laughs> but that's probably naive. Um, no, I do think any fundamental change, I believe in incremental changes on, on most things because I think nothing is perfect. And if you change something massively all at once, you're going to have made mistakes and you haven't given yourself time to fix it. I think most bills that are as large as this one are generally bad ideas, regardless of the content of them for just that reason. But I do think that, you know, you look at, I am unfamiliar with, and I will look it up, the story you told about a law in Georgia that would stop early voting on Sundays in predominantly black churches. 
I don't know what the impetus behind it is. I'm unfamiliar with it. But let's not act like there aren't protections. And those protections come in federal law and civil rights laws. If that happened and we are stifling or they are stifling the vote of a black community and deliberately, then there are federal protections to stop that from happening, to penalize them for that happening and to protect the rights of those black voters. And those should be invoked and it should be brought to the federal attorney general and however that works. And it should be addressed. What I don't think is you change the entire foundation of how we vote and who has the rights to make these rules because a bad thing happened in Georgia. Is there any thought that this, uh, this bill is rather condescending to minorities? I'll jump in and say, yeah, they, you know, and this keeps happening and it's well, cause minorities, black people, Hispanic people, um, they're being disenfranchised because what, because registering the vote is too hard. I mean, what, are, what are people trying? I've never understood this argument. I do think it's condescending and I think it's wrong. I think part of the problem with a lower voting turnout in some of the black communities, particularly in the South is these education systems, which have gotten better, I don't mean school education, I mean informing people where to register to vote, access to voting. They've gotten much better over the last few years, but I don't think those were in place for a long time. But I'm pretty sure that anybody, regardless of skin color, gender, creed, or sexual orientation, can figure out how to register to vote if that proper access is there. What I would say is that I am not in favor of no difficulty in voting at all. What I'm in favor of is equal difficulty in voting across groups. I, I am fine with the concept that there should be some verification of who you are. I am fine with the concept that from time to time, states should clean up their voter rolls to make sure that they've removed the names of deceased people. That's reasonable. Where I am not okay is where the measures that are employed disproportionately impact one demographic group or another. And look, time and time again, what we find is that the measures that have been put in place do disproportionately impact Black voters, Latino voters, demographic groups that disproportionately tend to vote for Democrats. And that is a problem. That, I think, is wrong. So, no, I don't think that it's condescending. I think that if you have a program that Black voters disproportionately like to take advantage of, they like to vote early at their church, then yeah, I'd say it's a problem if you get rid of that voting mechanism um, well, just just for for those folks. Let, let me let me just be a quick flamethrower here because the idea, the very question, is is it condescending to have fair voting laws? Is it condescending to have fair voting laws? Was John Lewis, who spent his entire life fighting for the right to vote for black people who are disproportionately disenfranchised in this country? Is it somehow condescending to enact in law the reforms that the conservative Supreme Court rolled back? Is that condescending? That question causes me to spout flames. Stacey Abrams called out GOP voting efforts as racist 
at a redux of Jim Crow in a suit and tie? So the answer is no. Doing justice is not condescending. Doing justice is doing justice. Saving democracy is not condescending. It's saving democracy. That'll do it for this edition of Balance of Power. For Alicia Preston, Paul Hodes, and Matt Robeson, I'm Ken Kale. Join us next time for Balance of Power. <laughs>